What makes that interesting is, well, I'm sure there's lots of things interesting about Albert Einstein's personal correspondence, but one of the one I want to point out today is his list of marital expectations. Okay, the list includes dirty laundry, quote, kept in good order, three meals regularly in my room, a desk maintained neatly for my use only, and then the demand that his wife quit talking or leave the room if I request it. As you can imagine, his marriage ended in divorce. But that list of marital expectations wasn't really all that abnormal in the early 1900s. Now, if we compare those demands with modern marital expectations, we'd say that they've evolved for the better. Or have they? Have they really? A recent study theorizes that as people have become more secular... As people have abandoned religious participation, they're no longer going to church, they're not reading the Bible, they're not pursuing an active relationship with God. As our culture trends that secular direction, people have started expecting romantic relationships to satisfy needs that were formerly satisfied through their faith. I mean, if you think clean laundry and regular meals require effort, try meeting the demands of providing your partner with a sense of transcendence or unconditional love, or wholeness, and meaning, and worth, and communion. That makes dirty laundry look pretty easy, doesn't it? One article on this topic concluded, The Western fixation on romantic love creates a crushing burden for mere mortals. It engenders a powerful myth regarding love, courtship, and marriage that a fallible human partner can not only share our passions but somehow sate our existential yearnings. Contemporary couples expect much more from marriage than it can realistically deliver. As one expert observes, most of us will be kind of shocked by how many expectations and needs we've piled on top of this one relationship. And our culture has so twisted the very meaning of marriage so that it's unrecognizable from what God intended it to be. And we've replaced God's expectations and purposes for marriage with our own romanticized, hallmarkified ideas of how we can live happily ever after. In a way, our cultural expectations of marriage have really turned it into an idol because we expect our spouse to fulfill what only God can fulfill. Only God can give you meaning. Only God can give you purpose and worth and wholeness and identity. And so, we're really setting ourselves up for relational ruin when we expect another human being to be and do what only God can be and do. It's not fair on them, and it's not fair to you. Well, thankfully, the Bible gives us clear principles and guidelines that, if embraced, will make a difference in our marriages. And so, I want to help this morning married couples to strengthen their relationships. I want to show you that there is hope for your home when you apply God's Word to yourself and to your family. Turn with me to Ephesians chapter 5. Ephesians chapter 5 is probably one of the most misunderstood passages in the New Testament, and it's probably one of the ones that people find most offensive today. So that's what we're going to look at this morning. But to help us understand the context and the purpose for what Paul is saying here, we've got to look beyond just the verses about husbands and wives. Look with me back at verses 1 and 2. 
Paul says, be imitators of God, therefore, as dearly loved children, and live a life of love, just as Christ loved us and gave Himself up for us as a fragrant offering and a sacrifice to God. Follow that on down now. Those verses really set up the whole theme for chapter 5 and most of chapter 6. But look down at verse 8. For you were once darkness, but now you were light in the Lord. Live as children of light. For the fruit of the light consists in all goodness, righteousness, and truth. And find out what pleases the Lord. And then we heard in our New Testament reading, uh, verses 15 through 21, which I won't read again. But when you take all of these together, you understand that the passage about marriage and the roles of husband and wife are ultimately... What Paul is ultimately writing about is about us imitating God. Us living lives of Christ-like love. He wants us to shine the light of Jesus into a darkened world. To live carefully and wisely because the days are evil. And how do we do all that? By being filled with the Spirit. Because, y'all, the days are evil. And our world is lost in darkness. This isn't just a cultural war. This is a spiritual war against how God has created us, male and female, about how God has instituted and His plans and expectations for marriage and for family. It's a spiritual war. And so we must be fighting that war, how? By living, loving, and shining the light of Jesus Christ in the fullness of the Spirit. That's how. Ephesians 5 beginning in verse 22, specifically tells us how our marriages, how our families, our homes, can point our lost and broken world to Jesus by showing how Spirit-filled couples really can have wedded bliss. That's not just an ironic hashtag title for this sermon. And the first thing Paul tells us about how we can achieve that is the Spirit-filled wife. Look with me at verse 22. Wives, submit to your husbands as to the Lord. For the husband is the head of the wife, as Christ is the head of the church, his body, of which he is the Savior. Now, as the church submits to Christ, so also wives should submit to their husbands in everything. And then look on down at verse 33. However, each one of you must also love his wife as he loves himself, and the wife must respect her husband. So Paul, in this passage, he's giving expectations and duties to both husbands and wives. Painting a picture of two equal yet distinct individuals becoming as one. Wives and husbands, hear me clearly, wives and husbands share equal worth and value, but they have different roles within the marriage. Think of the couple as dance partners, okay? In a dance, one leads... One follows. One initiates. One responds. But if you're going to have a dance, if you're going to have the waltz or the tango, it takes two, right? You've got to have them both. And when both of them know their roles well, it's a beautiful dance to behold. And so Paul begins by giving us two instructions to the Spirit-filled wife. And those instructions are submit and respect. Submit and respect. Now, I want to begin with the latter, because that's the easier one. Uh, the latter one, respect, which we saw in verse 33. 
why does Paul, he instructs husbands to love their wives, but he tells the wives to respect their husbands? <clears throat> well, you might say that, well, you know, men crave respect more, women crave love more, and maybe there's some truth to that. I don't know. But we have to understand the Greek word for respect here. Okay? It's a lot stronger than the word we usually mean for that. It's the very same word used throughout the Bible to talk about revering or fearing the Lord. When it says fear the Lord, it's the same word Paul uses here for respect your husband. Now, he's not saying that, that wives should be afraid or terrified of their husbands, but they should be in awe of their husbands. As in, my wife is always telling people how awesome I am. Right? Yeah. Maybe not. But seriously, the challenge there for men is that we should be awesome. We should live our lives in such a way that our wives think we're awesome. But seriously, the source of this reference, of this reverence, isn't the person of the husband, but the role of the husband. Sort of like how people say, you know, respect the office of the president, even if you don't like the person that's currently holding the office, you respect the office. It's like that. Women, you may not necessarily like your husband right now, but you respect the role of of husband, that God-given responsibility. And we're going to see in a moment why that role of the husband is worthy of that respect. But it's the first word that I think really gives people a lot of heartburn. Submit. We don't like, <clears throat> excuse me, we don't like that word. Um, but it's an entirely biblical word at least five times in the New Testament. Five times wives are told to submit to their husbands. Now, one problem is that we have confused traditional marriage with biblical marriage. See, we think that a submissive wife has to be a June Cleaver. That you've got to wear a dress and a pearl necklace and high heels while you're vacuuming the living room with one hand and cooking supper with the other hand waiting for your husband to come home from work. That's not biblical marriage. We think a submissive wife must be milk toast. She's got to be weak, timid, and unassertive and always answer with, Yes, dear, you're right, dear. That's not what biblical submission looks like. Let me explain the idea of biblical submission. The Greek word is hupotasso, which means to arrange under, to subordinate. It was a military term that referred to the subordination of soldiers in the army underneath their commanding officers. Good soldiers surrender control to their commanding officer. They let go of their own agenda for the sake of the army and for the sake of the mission. And that, according to verse 21, is how all Christians are to live under the Lordship of Jesus Christ and regard one another. In verse 21, Paul begins this whole paragraph with submit to one another out of reverence for Christ. In other words, this submission is an umbrella over all Christian relationships. Paul often referred to himself as a slave to everyone or a slave to the churches to which he was writing. What did Paul mean by that? Well, he was saying, he was practicing this Christian idea of submission. Considering others better than himself. Displaying humility and servanthood and sacrifice for the sake of others. That is Christian submission. And so submission isn't about mindlessly obeying orders without question. 
It's not about somebody being superior and somebody being inferior. In fact, Jesus often described himself as being under submission to the Father's will. So unless you're willing to say that Jesus is inferior for submitting to the Father's will, you can't say that a wife is inferior for submitting to her husband, can you? Because Jesus was under submission. Submission isn't about worth, intelligence, talent, or anything else. It is a structure established by God and a structure in which God has placed Himself because Jesus lives in submission to the Father. The Spirit is in submission to Jesus. So wives are called to follow their husband's loving leadership because his first priority is the safety and well-being of the family. As we'll see in a little bit, the husband must be willing to die for his wife. He is called to be the first one to apologize, the first to forgive. He is called to serve his wife. And so the wife submits to that loving, Christ-like leadership. I also want you to notice something about submission here. This submission is in the context of marriage. Some people get this wrong. Women are not called to submit to every man. The husband is the head of his wife, not all women in general. So this passage only applies to a husband and a wife. There's no application of this wife submit to your husband. This doesn't apply in the business place. It doesn't apply in politics. This only applies between a husband and his wife. And notice also it's a voluntary submission. Christian wives freely and responsibly follow the loving leadership of a husband who is faithfully following Jesus. Again, this has nothing to do with the traditional American trope where the man's laying on the couch saying, Hey, woman, get me a snack. That's not what this is about. It doesn't have anything to do with who cooks or cleans, who pays the bill or mows the lawn. It doesn't dictate that the wife be a stay-at-home mom, nor does it restrict her from bringing home more bacon than the husband. It doesn't. A biblical marriage, I want you to hear this plainly, a biblical marriage simply means the husband serves as the head and the wife as the helper as they submit to the loving leadership of the Spirit of God Her to the husband, the husband to Christ. That's what this means. And this not only serves the practical purpose in providing a structure for leadership and for decision-making within the home, it also provides a powerful spiritual illustration. That's the next part. The illustration is that of Christ and the church. Look at verse 32. This is a profound mystery. But I am talking about Christ and the church. See, our culture holds up romantic relationships as the ultimate goal. I mean, that is the ultimate. You watch any movie, TV show, the ultimate goal is that this couple get together. Romantic relationships is the the ultimate. But the biblical worldview holds that a relationship with Jesus Christ is our supreme purpose. Marriage isn't the goal. Marriage is the illustration of the highest relationship one can have, and that is with God through the person of Jesus Christ. 
So God ordained marriage to be a picture of the gospel, of the good news, that you and I, while we are still sinners and we are hopelessly lost in our sin, Christ loved us enough to lay down His life that you and I might be saved and stand right before God. Marriage is to be a picture of that good news. And that's why Paul here in verse 32 calls it a profound mystery. He's saying, this is awesome. This is mind-blowing. When God instituted the family, when He created marriage in the Garden of Eden, He had Christ and the church in His mind. Isn't that amazing? Now, there are three truths that marriage illustrates for us. The first is the ultimate picture of marriage. The ultimate picture of marriage. Spirit-filled wives give us the picture of the Spirit-filled church. And husbands are to give us a picture of Christ who is the head of His bride, the church. And if you, when we look here at the next paragraph in a few minutes, you're going to see what kind of head Jesus is for the church. He loves the church. He gave Himself up for the church. He nurtures the church into holiness. He cleanses the church of sin. He presents the church as a beautiful bride. And He provides for and cares for and nourishes the church. That's the kind of head that Jesus is to the church. And a Spirit-filled marriage. When you have a Spirit-filled husband and a Spirit-filled wife, they can provide that picture of the ultimate marriage, that of Christ and His church. The second truth this illustrates for us is the ultimate purpose of marriage. Marriage's ultimate purpose. And what is that purpose? The ultimate purpose of marriage is the glory of Jesus Christ. That's what marriage is for. Everything in this passage points us to Christ. Look at verse 22. Wives, submit to your husbands as to the Lord. Look at verse 25. Husbands, love your wives just as Christ loved the church. Look at verse 29. After all, no one ever hated his own body, but feeds and cares for it just as Christ does for the church. Everything begins with and culminates in the person of Jesus Christ. Now, we can get hung up on all kinds of marital issues, like communication problems, conflict resolution, financial management, personality differences. And certainly these can be significant issues for any couple to work through. But if we made the glory of Christ our number one priority in our marriage, how many of these issues would resolve themselves? If we made the glory of Christ the number one priority, because the ultimate issue in your marriage is simply this, are you surrendered to the Lordship of Jesus Christ? And will you submit to Him in every area of your life? That's what it really boils down to. Because if I am the starting point of how I think about my marriage, then I'm starting in the wrong place. Because my marriage is not about me. It's not about my wife. It's not about my daughter. My marriage is ultimately about and for Jesus Christ. It's for Him. It's for His glory. What if we viewed our marriages as an offering of worship to God as we love, forgive, and serve our spouse. Can you imagine the power of that witness? That brings us to the third truth. The ultimate hope for marriage. 
See, the biggest problem in marriage isn't communication, it's not lack of time, it's not clashing personalities, it's not even meddling in-laws. The biggest problem in marriage is sin. Sin. Plain and simple. And what's the solution to sin? It isn't working harder. It isn't trying to be a better person. The ultimate solution to sin is to surrender your lives to the glorious grace of the Lord Jesus Christ. To receive His love and His forgiveness. See, marriage is rooted in the Lordship of Jesus. And that gives us great hope for our marriages. Because guess what? Jesus is patient. Jesus is loving. He is merciful. He is forgiving. He gives us second chances and clean slates and fresh starts. So when your wedded bliss has become more of a wedded mess, don't turn to alcohol. Don't turn to escapism. Don't turn to fighting. Don't even turn to relying solely on books and counselors, although those are helpful. Turn to Jesus. Look to Him. Because marriage is meant to point us to Him. Let Jesus save your marriage. Now this illustration that we're talking about here, like marriage, takes two. It takes two to work. So Paul begins by addressing the Spirit-filled wife, and then he turns to the Spirit-filled husband. Look at verse 25. Notice he gives like three verses to the wives and the rest of us to the husbands. Husbands... Love your wives, just as Christ loved the church and gave Himself up for her to make her holy, cleansing her by the washing with water through the Word, and to present her to Himself as a radiant church without stain or wrinkle or any other blemish, but holy and blameless. In this same way, husbands ought to love their wives as their own bodies. He who loves his wife loves himself. After all, no one ever hated his own body, but he feeds and cares for it just as Christ does the church, for we are members of his body. For this reason, a man will leave his father and mother and be united to his wife, and the two will become one flesh. This is a profound mystery, but I'm talking about Christ and the church. However, each one of you also must love his wife as he loves himself, and the wife must respect her husband." Just as wives reflect the church in their submission, so the husband reflects Christ in his love. Author and preacher John Stott explains to us how similar love and submission really are. Listen to what he says. What does it mean to submit? It is to give oneself up to somebody. So he's saying that submission is giving yourself up to somebody. What does it mean to love? To give oneself up for somebody. See, to submit is to put the will of the other ahead of your will. To love is to put the needs of the other ahead of your needs. As I mentioned earlier, the wife's role is not less than the husband's. They are different. They are complementary. They're like dance partners. And while the wife's submission and the husband's love, really, they're really just two sides of the same coin. They're really just two sides of the same coin. Submission is just a form of love. But I do want us to conclude with what it looks like for the husband to love his wife as Christ loved the church. Three things. First, it's a sacrificial love. Look at verse 25. Husbands, love your wives just as Christ loved the church. And what? Gave himself up for her. It's a sacrificial love. Now, on Palm Sunday, we took an extensive look at all that Jesus endured from us. 
the scourging, the crown of thorns, the humiliation, all the excruciating details of a Roman crucifixion, the spear in his side. And why did Jesus endure such torture? Why did he die such a disgraceful death? For love. Because he loves you that much. But Jesus didn't just display his sacrificial love on the cross. He actually was displaying it the night before. When he was in the upper room, when he was instituting the Lord's Supper, Jesus took on the role of a servant and he washed his disciples' feet. I mean, yes, Jesus is the head of the church, but that didn't mean that Jesus came to be served. He came to serve and to give his life as a ransom for many. Jesus didn't come to lord his authority over us, but to be humble, to take on the form of a servant. Such is the sacrificial love of the Spirit-filled husband. Serving in humility. Laying down his pride. Taking up his cross. And dying to himself. Men, and I don't mean this as a joke, marriage is a call to die. I know we joke about that a lot. But marriage is a call to die. It means sacrificing your schedule and career ambitions for the sake of your family. It may mean putting something that you want to do on the back burner for the good of your bride. It means crucifying your flesh so that you can be faithful to your wife. It means being willing to admit when you're wrong, asking for forgiveness, and making restitution. It means that you're a servant leader. And it means that you can't be passive. You've got to be proactive and intentional in the way that you love. It's a sacrificial love. Secondly, it's a sanctifying love. We see that in verses 26 and 27. See, when somebody comes to faith in Christ, Jesus cleanses us of all of our sin. He makes us spotless, pure and clean before the Father. And Jesus not only cleanses us with that once-for-all-time washing away of our sin, but then He's constantly cleansing us and refining us through His Word and through His Spirit, shaping our character so that we bear the fruit of the Spirit. Now, men, Paul isn't saying that you can atone for your wife's sin, obviously. So what's the application here for us, husbands? It means that we should love our wives in such a way that it helps them grow in Christ-likeness. Ask yourself this, is my wife more like Jesus because I'm her husband? Or is my wife more like Jesus in spite of me being her husband? How would you answer that? Husbands, we have to be concerned for the spiritual health and growth of our families, especially our wives. And that means you, you read Scripture together, you pray together. That means you share with each other what God is saying and doing in your life. It means that you're worshiping together and you're serving together. It means that you're listening to her hopes and fears and dreams and struggles and then you rely on the Spirit to help you speak into her thoughts with the truth of Scripture. It means that you're walking the path of discipleship together. It's a sanctifying love. And finally, it's a satisfying love. In these last few verses, Paul kind of echoes what Jesus said. Remember, Jesus said that we are to love our neighbors as we love ourselves. And here Paul says that the husband should love the wife as he loves his own body. So Paul is both echoing Jesus, but Paul is also pointing us all the way back 
to the Garden of Eden. See, the husband's love for his wife not only reflects Jesus' love on Calvary, but it's also in fulfillment of God's plan at creation. Remember when God created Eve and gave her to Adam? A man shall leave his father and mother and be joined to his wife and become what? One flesh. So since the two have become one, if you are satisfying the needs of your spouse, you're satisfying your needs because you're one flesh. Men, just as you long for intimacy and security, just as you want happiness and health and success and companionship, seek to provide for those in your wife. And you'll find that you're providing them for yourself as well. Husbands, consider how you're doing at nourishing your wife. Are you cherishing her? Are you complimenting her and admiring her? Are you intentional about looking for opportunities to build her up? If you love your wife as your own body, think about that. Think of what you would or wouldn't do for the health and for the sake of your own body. If you love your wife as your own body, wouldn't you be willing to sacrifice career dreams, time for hobbies, really anything for her good? God created an ordained marriage. Jesus set the pattern for marriage. And the Holy Spirit empowers marriage. Will you commit your marriage to God today? Will you commit to follow Jesus' example in how you love your husband or your wife? Will you daily depend through prayer and the Word on the Holy Spirit to empower your marriage to the glory of God? Jesus died for you. Jesus died for you. He loved you so much that He made the ultimate sacrifice for you to give you a second chance, to give you a fresh start, to present you spotless before God the Father. Have you accepted that free gift? Do you know the love of Jesus Christ in your heart? Are you certain of where your eternal destiny lies? If you have any question about that, in a moment I invite you to come down and and know that you know today that you belong to Jesus Christ. This church, First Baptist Church of Thompson, is a church that is committed to helping families to flourish. We want to strengthen your marriage. We want to help you disciple and raise your children. We want to help you to be that spirit-filled husband, that spirit-filled wife that God would have you to be. So help us to affirm, encourage, and equip families. Maybe God is leading your family to unite with this church to say, this is the place where I want to contribute, and I want to grow, and I want to worship and serve. We invite you to come and unite with this church family. Whatever God is speaking to you today, let's stand and sing and respond as He leads.